Let's pray. Father God, as we explore the darkness that surrounds us, let us look to your light. Let us remember that with you there is no rival. There is no equal. And though today we may be talking about Molech the destroyer, our eyes are fixed on Jesus who is Lord, who is victorious, who is the name above all names. So Father, help us to have a sober view of today's message. As dark as it can be, we are people of the light, we are children of the King, and we are empowered to go forth on your mission to rescue and redeem the world, and it will all be according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, as you know, for the last several weeks, with a few breaks in between, Pastor Chris has been leading us on a journey about what might happen if some of the gods of old, and of course we know that there is one god of this world, and that is Satan, and he came to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet, he can manifest himself in different ways through different kinds of worship. And as we look at the world today, we can see his influence creeping in. Well, it's not just creeping in. It's flooding in. Let's go to the next slide. How many of you looked out your window and had the same expression that she's got on her face? What in tarnations is going on here? There are times when I know many of us, those of us that have been alive for a little while, our head spins at the rapidity, how quickly the world has changed and turned upside down, and it can be confusing, and it can be sobering, and it can be disorienting. The purpose of this study, the purpose of these messages is not to frighten. It's not for us to lament. It's not for us to retreat. It's not for us to panic. It's not for us to learn, henny penny, the sky is falling and hide and shrink away. The purpose of this message is to give insight and clarity into the reality that is around us and to respond in the way the church is meant to respond. This may seem sudden, it may seem new, but it is old as Satan in the garden. And many of us were fortunate enough to live under a reprieve. There were centuries of what's called Christendom, in which a Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian ethic, held sway. Even though society wasn't necessarily redeemed and people weren't necessarily fully committed, but there was enough of a remnant faithfully serving the Lord that we were able to keep the darkness somewhat at bay. But salt and light has to be present. And when salt loses its saltiness, it no longer has that preservative impact in the world that prevents encroaching decay. And when lights are dimmed or fewer, it has less ability to push back the darkness, and so it encroaches. And many of us feel like this has happened suddenly, like the world's lost their minds. I don't know how many times I hear people say, people have gone crazy out there. But the truth is, it's been happening, bubbling under the surface for decades. And just like a volcano, the magma is rising, the crust is being peeled back, steam is venting, but there's a moment where there's a tipping point, and there's an explosion. And that's what we've seen. We've seen an explosion of darkness in our world, and it's because the church is not the light that it's meant to be. 
Because that darkness also crept into the church. That darkness has also deluded and, 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 and dulled people's minds where they no longer have a Christian worldview anymore. In the next slide, yesterday I was teaching a, an English class. Many of you know that I was studying French a few years ago, and my French was, I was parlez-vousing pretty well. And then last year, I was dedicated to learning Spanish, and I even went to Mexico and studied Spanish, and I was ablying pretty well. And now I'm studying Italian. I'm planning to go to Italy in November, so I've got Italian in my head. And yesterday during the class, I have a bunch of Spanish speakers, and I have a bunch of, uh, there's a, there were three new immigrants from Haiti who speak French. And so Audrey can attest to this. I'm trying to, like, speak a little Spanish and speak a little French, and I can tell you gibberish came out because there were too many voices in my head. I could no longer speak those languages that once flowed out. And unfortunately, the church has allowed too many voices, too many competing worldviews, and we begin to speak that language. And then when it's time, when it's time to really live out our Christian witness, I can't access, I can't access that Christian worldview. I don't know the scriptures. I'm not confident anymore. And we end up with a mix and a jumble which is called syncretism. God will not share the throne with anyone or anything. We don't blend any compromise. And when compromise comes in, our light is dimmed, and our ability to combat the darkness is compromised. And that's what's happened. Now, another thing you might know about me, I love trivia. If any of you like Trivial Pursuit, I want you to join me on my team. We're going to kick some booty, all right? I love Jeopardy. I have tried to, I've applied online for Jeopardy many, many times, and I'm just not smart enough. So I'd like to show a little clip of those people who are way smarter than me. This is Jeopardy. Matthew 6:9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. There was a day where every day in my classroom, we said the Lord's Prayer. And we have people that can name every Shakespearean sonnet. They know how many paintings Rembrandt did. They know exactly the exact weight of the shuttle mission. But they don't know the opening words of the Lord's Prayer. Our culture, we cannot assume our culture anymore knows anything about God or the Bible or what it is to be a Christian. And sadly, we are not affecting the world to turn that back. We don't live in a Christian culture anymore. We live in a post-Christian world. So I'm just going to go back to Matthew 12. This is a scripture that Pastor Chris has brought up, and I'm just going to go through it quickly. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So shall it be with this evil generation. And as we've talked about over the last weeks and we've unpacked, the house was swept and clean, but it's now empty. The Christian values have been removed and replaced. And the moment that happened, seven worse have returned. 
and we are noticing its effects almost like never before. So today, we're going to briefly review the evil trinity that Pastor Chris shared. And first, he talked about the return of Baal, which is the promise of fertility and fruitfulness, increase and gain and prosperity. It's making a God of your own desire for independence and freedom, and it worships greed and control and power at all costs. And we see this in the halls of power in our nation. We see it on Wall Street. We see the ball gates up in New York. This is a real influence in our country. We are worshiping greed, power, independence, and self. And then a week later, we talked about the spirit of Ishtar, which is the abandonment of all moral safeguards. It's a spirit of seduction and instant gratification, sexual abandon, and gender confusion. And today we're talking about probably the darkest and most malevolent of the evil trinity, which is Molech, the destroyer. And Molech was associated with the sacrifice of human beings, and in particular, the sacrifice of children. The sacrifice of children by their own parents. There are three scriptures in the Bible that speak to Molech, and we're going to go through them briefly. In 1 Kings 11, it says, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemuk, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In Leviticus 18, he says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your god. I am the Lord. And in 2 Kings, he says, He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire to Molech. Molech was a god of sacrifice. Parents brought their babies, their children, to be burned in the fire so that they would get blessings, so that they would have comfort, so that they would not be encumbered by taking care of their charges. It was often a name unspoken. It was simply called the abomination. I can't imagine how much farther a person or a culture or a society can fall. The darkest depths that come to sacrificing our children, to murdering children in the name of self and pride and prosperity and independence. And this didn't just happen in the near Mideast. This happened in Egypt. It happened in Tahiti, in Mesopotamia, in Germany, in India, in Hawaii, from Africa to Tibet from the Aztecs to the Celts, the Mongolians and the Druids, human and child sacrifice have become endemic in a culture that turns its back on the living God. And how would Molech appear today? Now before we go on with this very much, I want to remind all of us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. And there are many, many women who have had abortions or struggle with abortions, and we're not here to judge or condemn or to shame. Every person in a difficult pregnancy needs to be valued. We, there's a place for repentance. There's a place for compassion. There's a place for the body of Christ to come around and put our arms around people so that they can help that child live and thrive and flourish. We don't come against people 
but we do come against the underlying power that is seeking to destroy children. So with that in mind, let's talk about the devastation that has been wrought due to abortion. There is a legacy of tragedy. Since the initial Roe v. Wade decision in 1973-74, more than 60 million unborn children have been killed in the United States through abortion. Now, there was a, a high peak in the number of abortions in 1992 at 1 1.4 million abortions that year. And thank the Lord, it declined. And today, it's between 650,000 to 800,000. 60 million. That's more than the population or roughly the population of Italy. And why has it happened? Well, if we allow the influence of Baal to come in and tells us that we should be free and prosperous, when we have Ishtar coming in and say that there should be sexual freedom without boundaries, without consequences, it leads inevitably to the destruction of children because we are worshiping ourselves and our convenience and our comfort and our prospects and our hope. Yesterday was the anniversary of when Roe v. Wade was struck down by the Supreme Court. Now, my dad's been trying to get me to quit doing this, but I do listen to NPR. I like NPR. The news there, though, is very liberal, and they've been talking about this anniversary all week, almost as if they're commemorating a tragedy. When Roe v. Wade was struck down, suddenly women were threatened and every time they talk about the issue, they're talking about ways to roll that back or to circumvent that or to stop these laws that now limit or prevent abortion. We want to believe that things changed when this law was struck down. And I believe it was important. Legislation is important. And education is important. But unless regeneration happens, nothing is going to change. The enemy will continue to come and continue to fight. And unless we push back the darkness and reach out to people and change hearts and change minds, we're fighting a losing battle. Some reports have said that abortion has decreased about 6% since Roe v. Wade was overturned. But that doesn't take into account all of the illegal abortions and all of the medically induced abortions that are being promoted. There has been a huge uptick in these abortion pills being sent to states where it's now illegal. So we really don't know if anything has really changed on the ground. Not only that, people are celebrating abortion. A few years ago, Michelle Wolf on her Netflix show had a whole salute to abortion with flags and balloons and streamers celebrating her abortion and encouraging others to have them with glee. People wear t-shirts at how proud they are. And I can tell you, as I was looking for an image, that was probably the only one I could show because most of them are laced with profanity or ungodly, blasphemous slogans. It's ghoulish, it's grisly, and it's proud. 
It's also on the attack. I don't know how many of you heard, but just about in May, two elderly men were praying outside an abortion clinic, praising the Lord and praying quietly. They weren't engaging anyone, and they were savagely beaten. And it was recorded on film. And no one has found the perpetrator. And there's been calls to say that this case is not even being investigated. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to hear about this on most news outlets. I heard about this on the Christian news outlets. But I guarantee you, if abortion providers have been attacked, it would be everywhere. They're on the offense. I don't know if you heard about, again, a few weeks ago, there was a group of Christian students that had a pro-life table at their school, which they had a permit for. They were given permission to do it with information about the pro-life pr perspective. And one of the teachers came over and screamed at those students, total profanity, tipped over their table, and when the security guard came, she pulled out a knife on him. Now, these are isolated cases, perhaps, but they speak to the deep, malevolent hate about anyone that will speak about abortion as anything other than murder. We notice, a whole, I, I listened on NPR about this victorious, courageous woman who's building abortion clinics at the borders of all the states that have laws limiting or preventing abortions. And she even did it without being honest with her landlord. She lied about what that clinic was for. And they're trying to get her to stop, and she won't. Because her agenda, her moral imperative, this is a moral duty for her to protect the right of people to murder. Abortion comes when God is forgotten. As nations turn to atheism, abortion became immediately legalized. In 1922, in Russia, when it became the Soviet Union, one of their first acts was to legalize abortion. If you look at the pitiful, sad history of China, during the one-child policy, women were chased into the fields and given abortions forcibly over their screaming for their children. And even today, baby girls are left out to die and it's commonplace, and people walk by them on the streets as a normal thing, like seeing a bag of garbage. Hitler, same thing. He wanted to abort as many children as he could from the undesirable groups, and he did. Why? Well, the only way that we can kill our children is to devalue human life, to say that life isn't sacred, to say that people are only valuable as long as they contribute to the status quo, as long as they're productive. Value comes in what you can give and how we can use you. And if you're no longer useful, or you're not useful yet, you're expendable. And so there's all these debates, because people know that we can't, do, we can't call it killing. We can't call it murder. We have to redefine our terms. And so there's this question. Next slide. What is a human life? When does it begin? Is it development? You know, how far along does it develop? There's a magical moment where suddenly it's a life? Is it viable? In other words, can it live on its own? Well, I don't know about you, but I was probably 30 before I could live on my own. 
Is it about sentience? Is it about its intelligence? Are we ranking people's value on how smart they are? Is that what we've come down to? Is it usefulness? You see, the thing is, there's a deception. To kill a child in the womb, we must deny his or her personhood. We must deny his or her value. We must deny their humanity. We say a fetus is not a person. When you hear pro-abortion advocates speak, they will never call it a baby. It's always a zygote or a group of cells or it's a fetus. They speak of it like it's a parasite. They speak of it like it's a tumor, like it doesn't exist because it's small and it doesn't have a voice. But we know through all of the research, through the Genome Project and through DNA, that the moment of conception, that child is as fully human as you and me. There's nothing lacking, nothing missing. It's all a matter of development. It's all a matter of location, in or out. Since when does location mean a hill of beans about your humanity? I'm still developing. You're still developing. Our children in VBS are still developing. Because they're four foot tall, does that not mean they're fully human? They are fully human. And so is that child in the womb. They will never call a woman having an abortion a mother or the child a child. We can't use those words because we can't talk about what's really happening. Instead, there's a word spin. We talk about reproductive rights. We talk about abortion care. We talk about my body, as if there's only one body to be considered. They never want to say what it really is. They never talk about the fact that a child's body is pulled apart, that they feel pain. I don't want to get into all the grisly details. We've heard about it. But the world wants to pretend none of that is happening that just magically, poof, the problem is solved. And yet 60 million children in our country, in our lifetimes for many of us, have never taken a breath, have never gone to school, have never felt love. Now, they may feel it in God's presence, but they were robbed of their opportunity for life. Why? Most of the time, it's because of selfishness. Yes, there are women facing difficult trials with rape or incest, and those are the cases that are brought up, and yet they represent a minuscule, minuscule, minuscule percentage of those, treat those procedures that happen. And those things should be dealt with with compassion. But we don't punish a child for the crime of another. What does God say? We have to know what God says about life. And in Psalm 139, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of my days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And yet, the world has abandoned the sacred God-decreed view of life. And many people, they hail Margaret Sanger as this wonderful trailblazer, this wonderful pro-woman advocate, and if we look at her history, we understand that it was just eugenics. You know, 
in ancient times, rather than sacrificing their own children, they would often purchase a poor child from a poor family and sacrifice that child as well. And in many ways, abortion is the same thing. Margaret Sanger advocated abortion to get rid of the poor, to get rid of African Americans, to get rid of anyone that did not measure up to what was considered valuable in the society. And that's why today you see in almost every city in the country, abortion clinics are generally set up in areas that are decaying and poor with desperate people, often minorities. It's a desire to destroy the weak and the helpless and the marginalized and those that we don't want. But God sees them as precious. Even those child children being killed in the womb, he saw them being formed. And he was with them in that moment. And he's with them now. In Europe, Iceland was re recently sanctioned, not sanctioned, but they were called out because they have an almost 100% abortion rate for children with Down syndrome. And I have a friend from Sweden that says it's exactly the same. If a mother goes into the clinic and they determine the child has Downs, they schedule them an abortion right away because those people are seen as less valuable. And you and 